Well, go ahead, Overlay, grab a seat. That song that we just sang, those lyrics, we're going to continue that conversation this morning. We're going to continue the series we're in called A Glimpse of Heaven. And you're welcome to grab your notes out of your handout. If you want to follow along, that would be wonderful. Um, I do just want to let you know that, that this is one of those series that just really it fires me up so much. I absolutely love it, and, and it gets me thinking, kind of looking all the time. And so this week, I've been especially mindful, and I feel like I've had a few glimpses of heaven. Uh, one day, running on the trails by our house, the sun came out from behind the clouds, and the fall colors were amazing, and I felt like, oh, this is a glimpse of heaven. Uh, I, I, we had a, a great meal, an Italian restaurant, just delicious Italian food. It was Frankie's in Redmond. Frankie's, by the way, will be in eternity forever and ever. Uh, but yeah, just, just a great, great glimpse of, oh, it was so good. And, and even just we had a, a game night around the, the table and, and just laughing with my family and just recognize, oh, that's a glimpse of heaven. And you know what's funny is, is we actually maybe say phrases like that. We have a great meal. We say, oh, this is a taste of heaven. Or, or we have, you know, come back from a great vacation. We say, oh, that was a slice of heaven. But there's, there's something actually there. There's something substantive about that phrase. Because what, what we're trying to say is that experience that we had, that, that, that moment, it, it was actually, it, there was a richness to it and a gravity to it, and it was so weighty that, that we could see how this would be like it in eternity, that this would carry forward into the next life. And we talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about how, how Jesus, his plan is to restore and to resurrect. And, and, and we talked a little bit about how it, it, heaven, the language that heaven is used uh, to be described by in the scriptures, it's always relational language. And, and it's language that has to do with love. And, and so these relationships of love that we will carry into eternity, love with God the Father, love with one another. We talked about how it's relational, every tribe, every every tongue, every, every language, the, the idea that, that heaven is beautifully diverse because all, all of us are created in the image of God. God wants all of his children to be with him in heaven. And so it's very, very relational. In fact, even, I just, we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week, but even the concept of mansions in heaven, it's actually a relational concept. You might be familiar with this. It's the words of Jesus in, in John 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He's speaking to his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house uh, are many mansions. You might want to underline that phrase. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the, the line, in my Father's house are many mansions. And it's strange for us to think about in our American context because we think of a mansion as a big, you know, kind of a house already. And so Jesus is saying, in my father's house, like inside his house are many big houses. Like it's just hard for us to keep that in mind. I just do want you to know God is okay blowing your mind. Like that's totally fine with him. But, but this concept of mansion, it really, if you literally translate it from the Greek, it's just dwellings, right? That in my father's house are many dwellings, many places, many rooms, and, and, and we're all going to be together in that relational context. 
And, and the reason why I have to say this is because our thought of a mansion is a huge house on a hill surrounded by acres and acres and acres of land, surrounded by a huge wall or a fence separating it from all the, the other, the commoner, you know, kind of folks. And, and I just want you to understand that that's not what Jesus was speaking about. In fact, uh, the picture that we get, what Jesus was talking about is actually from Israel, first century Israel. We, we've had a couple of trips there. We're taking another trip in January. And, and there's a, a town called Capernaum where Jesus he spent time. And, and there are foundations of the, the dwellings, of the, of the many houses, the many dwellings in Capernaum. And it's so interesting, these foundations, because basically there's a main street that runs down in the center of town. And then all of these dwellings, all of these, these houses are actually built together. And they're under one roof. And so you can imagine that, that the door of your house opens up into the door of your, your best friend's house, the door of your, your grandma's house, the door of your cousin's house. That it just every dwelling opens up into other dwellings. And, and the entire picture then that Jesus is talking about is that we will dwell together in these relationships of love under the Father's roof for all of eternity. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It might not seem beautiful now because that's, we're fallen. We, we, we want our space, right? But, but in heaven, we, we won't be. We'll be glorified. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So heaven is a place of love, and, and we're talking about it for a couple of weeks. I want you to know that God actually wants us to talk about what it is that he's preparing for us for all of eternity so that it actually impacts our life today. The scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God, he has planted eternity in the human heart. So God has planted eternity within us. God wants us to, to think about it and to meditate on it because he wants how good it's going to be to fuel our effectiveness for his kingdom in our life today. And there's a book that I've read and, and several of you have read. It's by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. I recommend that to you if you're interested in doing some more reading. But he talks about how what we need to do is we need to open up the pages of Scripture and use the pages of Scripture as a door through which to step and allow Scripture to stir up our biblical imagination so that we can understand more clearly, paint a more full picture as to what it is that God has prepared for us. And so that's the main topic we're going to be talking about today. We're going to let, we're going to let our biblical imagination give us a glimpse of heaven today. And let's jump in. The Apostle Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, this is what the scriptures mean. When they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's where we stop a lot. And it's okay to stop there for a second because it's interesting to go, okay, so we haven't heard, we haven't seen, we can't even imagine how good it's going to be. Whatever it is that God has prepared, it's beyond our capacity. And I think that's fine. It's good. But notice what Paul says immediately afterwards. He says, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. 
And the point of this is that when the Holy Spirit guides our thinking, we can really catch a glimpse of what it is, how good it's going to be, what God is preparing for us. And this is a part of God's desire. Not only that, but Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, he, he told stories. And he, he presented the kingdom in the form of parables. And these were designed to stir up our imagination and our creative thinking about how good it's going to be when the reign and rule of God the Father is present with us. He told these stories of the kingdom. And if you want some extra reading this week, I highly recommend reading Revelation chapter 21 and 22, or Isaiah chapter 60, 65, and 66. And, and so go ahead and, and write those things down, pursue those on your own, but let me give you the Cliff Notes version of them right now. The first thing you need to know is that we will be resurrected and glorified along with all of creation. We will be redeemed and made new, and so will the entire universe we will dwell in this renewed reality in the awesome presence of God, and it's going to be really, really good. The Bible says that all things will be made new. It actually doesn't say that God will make all new things, but it's about restoration. It's about resurrection, purification, glorification. And the Bible talks not of, of creation, but of recreation. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, the life we now have as the persons we now are will continue in the universe in which we now exist, but all purified, all glorified, all resurrected. Now, I, I do want you to note the similarities between Revelation 21, that's at the end of the New Testament, and Isaiah 60, that's in the Old Testament. And notice how similar the language is regarding eternity. Isaiah 60 says this, No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will not go down. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, your days of mourning will come to an end. Washingtonians, just this promise of God's light and sunshine should start your hearts thumping, right? Like, we'll take that. That sounds wonderful to us. And then Revelation 22 says, And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared or passed away. And this idea of a purified universe as our playground and a dwelling place for the Lord, a union of heaven and earth where we dwell with God upon an earth that has been resurrected and restored. And Alcorn again argues that in order to imagine what heaven's going to be like, we need to simply look around and imagine what all of this amazing earth would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. And the Bible speaks to that clearly when it says in Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. You see, in, in Genesis chapter 3, 
we read that when Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God, when they sinned, that original sin, it's actually described by theologians as the fall of man. And the fall of man created a thud that reverberated through the universe. And that, that taint of sin, that curse has affected everything, literally everything. And so this biblical imagination then starts to kick in. Can we imagine what it would be like, this, this earth, this life, this, this realm without the taint of the curse? And so it, 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 let me just ask a couple of questions. Can you imagine Seattle with 300 days of sunshine and still green? That sounds wonderful, right? Can, can you imagine mosquitoes that gently kiss your arm and never bite? Can you imagine calorie-free chocolate chip cookies that bake themselves? Now, these are lame, these are lame examples. Like, I get it. They're lame. But, but, like, we're using our biblical imagination. Let, let me give you some implications of the curse. This is a fourfold implication of the curse from Genesis 3. It's a broken relationship between humans and God. So... Can you imagine all spiritual pain healed? A broken relationship between humans and humans. Can you imagine all relational pain reconnected? A broken natural order because of sin. Can you imagine all biological pain redeemed? And a broken view of self. Can you imagine all psychological pain? Every one of us made whole. You see, when we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to work within our lives, and the Bible says that we are new. God begins to work backward in our lives, and we see the curse having less and less effect on our spiritual, relational, uh, psychological, even biological lives. In other words, we already see the first fruits of this reality, but we still feel the taint and the stain of sin wherever we look in this fallen world. We see it crop up all the time within ourselves. So can you imagine with me, can you just let your mind go with me to, for a few moments what the complete removal of the curse actually means? You know, every week we get, we get prayer requests at Overlake, and we really do encourage you, write your prayer requests down on the connection card because we've got a team, we pray over these, we lift them to the Lord with you, and, and so this is one of those things we do, but, but there are hundreds and hundreds of prayer requests that come in every single week, and every single one of them seems to be a, 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 some kind of an implication of the curse and the fall of man impacting our lives today. And so here's a couple of things. If you're filling the blanks, the first is that no curse means no more disease. No more disease. Can you just imagine this for a moment. Can you imagine no cancer? If so many of us in this room right now, we've wrestled with cancer, or we have had loved ones wrestle with cancer, or we've sat in a room and watched a loved one pass away because of cancer. We just, over like, we just lost a dear sister this week because of cancer. Can you imagine no cancer? Can you imagine no Alzheimer's? Can you imagine no HIV? Can you imagine, like, if you've ever been overseas and, or you've seen pictures of, of little children in Africa dying of malaria, 
just imagine no disease, the, the disease completely gone forever and ever. No atrophy, no arthritis, no cold or flu, no, no symptoms of aging, healthy organs, healthy muscles, healthy joints, healthy systems, full health and functionality. functionality. It, it's like, it's almost beyond what we can imagine. But that's the promise, no disease. The next thing that no curse means is that no curse means glorified bodies. Glorified bodies. I just want you to know, over like we've talked about this before, I'm so excited. In heaven, I get a glorified body. And that means I'm going to have an intellect like Pastor Gary. And I'm excited about this. It means I'll have facial hair like Pastor Dom. And I'm excited. It means I'll have an ab like my firefighter buddy, right? Like, like I'll be able to uh, washboard. I, it means I'll have rhythm like a drummer. I, I just want you to know I have a checklist for the Lord. That, that I, I, There's some things I'm excited about it, with a glorified body. And I know I'm, I'm making light of this, but you think about what glorified bodies means for all, right? And of course, I have some dear friends that are handicapable who are joyfully charging life without the use of their legs or their muscles, who are facing some kind of a physical challenge. And I have a dear friend who's overseas right now with our South Africa team. She's serving in Cape Town. And, and just the, the, the amazing amount of effort and the amazing amount of faith that it has taken for her to finally get overseas to serve. And I think about her and her faith. And, and when I think about her dancing running across meadows and mountains like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. <laughs> Think about her throwing her fully functional arms around Jesus. I can't help but get emotional. I, I used to run on the trail by my house. <clears throat> I, I should actually start that again. I still run on the trail by my house. <laughs> but I used to run on this trail past a an organization called Little Bit. It's a therapeutic writing organization in, on the east side. And, and the reason why I don't run by it anymore is because they moved and they're too far to run by now, and so I don't. I used to run by this therapeutic writing organization, and what they would do is, is they take horses and they train them, these gentle giants. And, they, and then they take these little kiddos. Whose, whose muscles just won't work, right? And surrounded by staff and by their loved ones, they take these kiddos writing. And it's therapy. It's, it's beautiful. So one day I'm running by the, the trail, and they, they bring out this little boy. and You can just see he's having the time of his life. And, and so I kind of run up and pass him, and he smiles so big at me, and he waves, and I smile and wave at him. And I turn, I keep running, and I just, um, I just start weeping uncontrollably. And it was not because I was going uphill. <laughs> but it was because of this promise, this picture we have in Scripture, that there will be a new body. There, there will be a restored frame. There, there's a glorification coming, and it's such a beautiful thing to dwell on. And Scripture says this. It says in 2 Corinthians, we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself. Yeah, you might want to underline that. That's a pretty, 
It's a pretty powerful phrase. An eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Now, one of the random and tangential questions that my creative team and I like to ask one another is if, okay, we, we have these glorified bodies, we have these new bodies in heaven, and so how is it that we're going to move around in heaven? How, what's what's going to be the mode of travel that we employ? And just one of those random things we think about. And, and we do get a picture in heaven of what the resurrected life looks like because we get to see and read about Jesus. And so we get to see how did he move around and you know, one of the pictures that we get in heaven or in the Bible is when Jesus ascends to heaven and, and he's just caught up in the clouds. And, and so I just wonder, oh, yeah, and we kind of get this picture of, of angels that are able to fly around. And so that's my vote, by the way, if God cares. That How, how many of you ever had a dream about flying? Anybody ever dream about flying? Yeah, yeah. May, mount up on wings like eagles. I'm game. You know, that sounds good. But, but there's actually another picture that we get in Scripture, and, and this is we get it uh, more clearly in, in Jesus in his resurrected life, and it's this, and I'll just read it to you real quick. This is in Luke 24. It's after the resurrection. The disciples are all inside a locked room at this point, and it says, just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking that they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch, touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. Okay, so that's a, a very interesting passage. That the room's locked. They're all in this very secure environment and all of a sudden Jesus is in their midst and, and he's tangibly there. He's not, you know, ethereally there. He's, he's, he's physically present with them, and how did that happen? Did he just kind of teleport, like, beam, you know, like Star Trek kind of a thing? Or did he just, like, pass through the, the walls? Was he able to just kind of walk through the wall and get there? Now, ironically, many of you know this, Einstein used to begin his classes that he would teach by taking a tennis ball and throwing it against the blackboard. And he would tell his classroom, uh, the reason is because matter, all matter, is mostly space. No matter how hard it may seem, it's really mostly space. Because matter is simply made up of molecules which are comprised of atoms. And atoms are mostly space. And, and so he would throw the tennis ball against the blackboard. And his theory was that all of the space in the tennis ball, there's a chance that that would all line up with the space in the blackboard. And the tennis ball could theoretically pass right through. What's so cool is that on the very last day of any class that he ever taught, he went and he threw the tennis ball against the blackboard and it actually bounced right back like it had every other time. Yeah, nothing happened. It did not go through the wall. And, and yet maybe it will. Maybe, in, maybe it's a foretaste, right? Maybe that's just he's on to something. I don't know. This is, again, under the speculation of biblical imagination here. My vote, flying, just in case you care. The next thing is that no curse actually means glorified beauty. Glorified beauty. Now, now, think about the implications of this. No lust, no envy, no comparisons. Each one of us portraying the unique beauty that God originally had in mind when he created us in love. When, when he crafted us uniquely to reflect and radiate his glory as we are made in his image celebrating one another's beauty as our own. 
this reality has so many good news implications. You know, there's, a, there's a documentary that's been released recently about female body image and all of the brokenness that goes with it. The unrealistic pictures of beauty that magazines project nonstop. Not only talking about the photoshopping that happens, but the, but the brokenness of a whole industry that pressures models to eat cotton balls so they'll feel full and yet still weigh 99 pounds or whatever. Such devastation. It's so unrealistic. There's so much brokenness there. And just think of the liberation that comes when, when you would be in a place where you could look at your own body and see it just as God sees it, beautiful, good, and yet with no follow-up sense of vanity or arrogance at the beauty that you possess. Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that brings us to another form of beauty, which is creative achievement. For example, the beauty that we can create through art or through poetry or through sculpting or painting. And, and this even raises another question. What about the creativity involved in technology? Will technology continue to develop or play a role at all? We found a cartoon uh, that Steve Jobs enters into heaven and Moses meets Steve. He's going to upgrade your tablets, you know. And again, we have to use our biblical imagination here, but, but most scholars believe that yes, because of the creativity and the drive and the productivity that God has given humans made in his image, that yes, some sort of technological development will be a reality. But it's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's because of the fallenness of the world, the brokenness of, of what we see today. In a fallen world, technology is always a double-edged sword. It always brings pollution, destruction, temptation, no matter what good things it also brings. But in a perfected world, it's going to be so interesting to see how we pursue creativity and imaginative engineering. Can you imagine utilizing industry and construction with incredible love and respect for this resurrected and restored earth? How much honor and love would go into every endeavor? Every single creative work being done by humans, specifically designed for the purpose of reflecting and glorifying the creative God we celebrate. The next fill-in is that no curse means our glorified thoughts and desires. Glorified thoughts and desires, and yet, at the same time, a godly contentment. Simply enjoying one another and enjoying ourselves in a perfect state. I want to say... For all of my friends who struggle with addictions, this should be a sincere and great hope. That no more would you wrestle with desires or activities that hurt you or hurt others. And we do celebrate that even now God comes alongside of us and he gives us strength and the peace of walking with him in sobriety and wholeness. But it's still a wrestling match for so many and it's exhausting at times. The Apostle Paul gives us an insight into that when he writes in Romans 7, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Paul's wrestling match. He, he describes himself in this passage as what a miserable state that he's in. And so many of us, we know what that feels like. And yet the promise is that there will be a day when we're glorified 
when what we want is what God wants, and the thoughts that we think will be purified and uplifting and wonderful thoughts. And then no curse means glorified time. Many of you haven't thought this far, but you know that time itself is a created reality, created by God, a construct that he has actually given us. It's a grace of his so that we'll be able to understand and order our lives. And, and yet God exists outside of time. Time is created. And because it's created, it also means that time has been tainted with the fall. It, it has been tainted with the curse. But it will be perfected and renewed as well. So I just want you to imagine the richness of time without the wistfulness of mortality or the bittersweet nostalgia of days gone by never to be reclaimed. No sense of childhood lost or innocence lost. No sense that you can't go home again. No sting in time. No need for hurrying. But also no boredom. No desire to kill time or waste time. No mid-eternity crisis where you rush out and buy a convertible. With the curse gone, each moment will be able to be enjoyed to the full, enjoyed and utilized for God's glory as we serve him and worship him in the wealth of our moments. You know, in Revelation 8.1, we get a picture of time passing in the throne room of God, but it's glorified time, it's perfected time. And the main thing that I want to leave us with is the fact that God will be present with us. That we're talking about our resurrected life on a resurrected planet with no hint or whiff of the curse. Living in close proximity with our comfort, our savior, our father. Able to explore the wonders of a recreated nature. Able to celebrate the best of untainted culture and art and literature and creativity able to enjoy relationships without fear or distrust or hurt of any kind, able to look at the beauty in each individual and not lust or covet or compare, but simply to praise God, able to look at your own incredible glory and not even for a second to become vain or proud. But every good thing in this state of blessedness just causes us to praise our wonderful God even more. It's the fulfillment of our heart's deepest desires. You know, so many of us, we don't even know what our heart's deep desires are, but God does because he's the one that planted them within us. He's the one that planted eternity within us as well, and he's the one who's going to fulfill all of this. And since we're using our biblical imaginations, I just want to point you to one of my favorite books in the whole world. It's from a series called The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, that wonderful series. They're called children's books. They're really for adults. It starts with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It goes all through these, these chronicles, these adventures in a land called Narnia, where Aslan, the, the noble lion, is the Christ figure. This is the last paragraph in the last book, which is called The Last Battle. And it says this. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. I really don't know why I'm crying. It's like a kid's book. Um, just for the record, I can't read the end of Charlotte's Web either. Thank you, Mom. Uh, it's 
Since all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Ooh. Ooh. I think part of the reason why I get so choked up is because I do more funerals than you do. I see more people at the jumping off place. I see the hope that this contains really clearly. And over like, I just have to tell you, there's so much more. There's so much more. Next week, we're going to talk about the deal with scarcity. We're going to talk about this whole idea of a renewed biological nature. We're going to talk about God's heart to reward his followers. But you've got to come back next week. <laughs> and you've got to bring a friend because everybody wants to know about heaven. But right now, I just want to close by asking the question, well, what, what does all this mean for us right now? How does this sort of impact the here and the now? And it is really, it's really simple, and, and we mentioned it last week, we'll mention it this week. It's this, that God is preparing heaven. He's preparing eternity for you. He is making heaven for you. He made hell for Satan. That, Satan, by the way, doesn't run hell. He's not the warden of hell. He's an inmate. Satan's in hell for all the hell he's caused in your life. But nobody has to go there. The invitation is on the table for all of us to be in the heaven, in the eternity that God is preparing specifically for us. And I know this because he has pursued us in love. And he has paid the price so that we can all be with him in heaven. And the price that he paid was Jesus. And that's why in, in the most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3.16, it says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, look at this, but to save the world through him. That's what Jesus came for. See, God loved us, and so God gave. And we believe, and we receive. And so I just want to encourage you to do that today. Salvation just means you place your faith in Jesus. You put your trust in him. You recognize that he paid the penalty for our sins, that, that he has come on a rescue mission for us, and so... So we let him. We let him. We, we trust that he has done the work on the cross necessary to forgive our sins and to cleanse us so that we could have a relationship with God that starts now and lasts for eternity. And I love what some of the last words in all of the scriptures are. It's just an invitation. It says, come. To all who are thirsty, come. Drink deeply. The waters of life, they're for you. If you're thirsty, come. And so I want to encourage you to do that today, that you would just come and that you would place your faith in Jesus and that you would know 
that God is preparing a place for you forever. Why don't you stand to your feet right now? I want to lead us in a prayer. And then we are just going to worship the Lord together for his goodness and his kindness over us. Why don't you bow your heads with me? And Jesus, we do want to tell you how thankful we are that you have pursued us in love. I want to say thank, thank you, how thankful we are that you have paid the price for our sin, that your sacrifice is what cleanses us, and we trust in you today. We do come to you because we are thirsty. We want to drink deeply the waters of life that you bring. And so, Jesus, we just say thank you. Right now, Lord, we, we are your people. We are your followers and we recognize that in all of this imagine, imagining, this biblical imagination of how great it's going to be in heaven, we just confess to you that it does fall so short of how good it really will be, how amazing it's going to be to be in your presence, to be glorified, to be in, in perfect relationship with one another, to be in a community of brothers and sisters, every tribe, every tongue, every language from every corner, all made in the image of God, all saved by the work of Jesus on the cross, all worshiping the Father forever and ever. And we want to do that right now, Lord Jesus. And so we say this in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.